Even mature companies don't have everything solved. And all the people above you have so many more problems that they're trying to deal with that they've not even made you aware of. Uh, and so like just knowing that the field of problems beyond your immediate site is so vast that no one around you can fully solve all of them. It's, it's such a gift for you to go then try and find some of these problems and see what where you could make the most impact and where the product could get a lot better and to be forming you know problem statements around those things and trying to pitch those ideas. Welcome to Deep Dives. My name is Rid, and this is where we go deep with the best designers so that you can learn from their journey and apply it to your own career. Today, I'm talking with Steph Engel, who's currently leading AR design at Snap. Now, the crazy thing about Steph is she's never been rejected from a job, and it's not like she has low standards either. She's worked in super high-profile roles like Facebook, Airbnb, and she was even the first designer at Cruise. In today's episode, we go deep into Steph's interview process, how she presents her work, and a lot more. But first, I wanted to know, what's it like designing for all of these new technologies like augmented reality and self-driving cars? I think the way that designing on these kind of new types of products like augmented reality and self-driving cars and things like that, I think the way that's actually unique is maybe a little bit in tooling. Maybe you learn like a 3D prototyping tool, but you still learn prototyping and it's still all about solving real human problems. I think you need to watch more that you don't get too removed from human problems and you make sure you're solving things people actually care about instead of how do we make people like AR or VR or whatever it is. So I think you have to be more uh, aware that you're not solving your own problems or the company's problems. I think otherwise too, something unique about designing for these kinds of new zero to one type concepts is just being really aware of your own stamina to work on a problem that hasn't been solved before. And not like you can't really throw something into the wild always. And sometimes when you do, it's you're not gonna see gratifying success immediately. And so I think you need to be okay just coming back up to bat over and over again. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, that's one of the things that's so exciting to me about it is the fact that there's just like not as much precedent in your world. Like so many of the things that you are approaching kind of just haven't really been done. There's not like, uh, you can't just hop onto mob and design and just like look at a bunch of different interaction patterns and pick your favorite one, you know? You'd be surprised though. I feel like when you're trying to design really new types of interfaces, you're actually really trying to steal from what people understand. And you're really trying to pick where do you innovate. You might not want to innovate on the navigation of something because the car drives itself. So that's a lot crazier and you don't want to make ride sharing and using an app so much harder. And so I think it's it's really choosing where you innovate. And I actually do spend some time on on Mobin um, and you you kind of want to steal the precedent where you can. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so let's go, let's go all the way back. How the heck does someone with a public policy degree all of a sudden wind up in product design? What was that jump like? Oh my gosh. So, um, you know, I, I study public policy, which doesn't really have a direct beeline towards a design career. I could say something that I might say in interviews uh, about how public policy is ultimately the study of solving human challenges and it's all about stakeholder management and all kinds of things, but that's not really what happened. Truly what happened was I was grew up around the Bay Area. I had this awareness of folks who were working in tech. And then I went across the country to go to school at Duke and everyone was kind of pulling me towards consulting and 
finance and all this kind of stuff, but it just didn't really resonate with me. So I knew I wanted to be back on the West Coast, probably in tech somehow. But really the way I got from public policy to design was I worked um, at this company at school that wasn't affiliated with the school. In fact, it kind of was like warring with Duke where we provided all of these services to students. We did food delivery and we did bigger mattresses because the mattresses on the one campus were too small or uh, we did party planning and all kinds of things. So I ran that company and I did what I thought was marketing, but was actually product design because I would design mm. everything from the websites to advertise the products till we design an app for the products. And I had no clue that I was doing anything other than marketing. And I thought I was going towards, you know, a nice marketing career instead of consulting or, or finance or one of those. So I really just honestly didn't know that I was doing design. And then one day um, I was going to go to a consulting internship. And then instead I decided to just go back home to the Bay Area. And when I did that, I actually had the founder of a company called Secret, which was a very infamous company at the oh, time, yeah. anonymous social network. And it was really blowing up. And the founder, David, actually just reached out to me kind of randomly. And he just said, I really like your website and your work. And my website was photos I had taken and, you know, just like, I don't know, just random graphic design type things. And then this company I had worked on the app for and asked me to come out. I went out to intern. He said, what have you done before? I said, a lot of marketing. And so I got out there and I realized that there were some really great designers at the company and I saw what they were doing. And I was like, oh, I have all those skills. I just need to repackage the things I've done in a little bit of a different way. And so I did that. And then I decided that I was going to do something really ridiculous, which was send my new portfolio to Facebook's VP of design at the time, Julie. And I just sent it to her on Messenger because I figured that all Facebook employees probably use Messenger. <laughs> and that was back when you weren't prevented from sending things to anyone's inbox. And so I just sent it and she read it. And I don't even think she responded, but she just sent it on to a recruiter who probably just thought they were receiving the most important candidate mm -hmm. of the day. But really, I was just kind of no one. And yeah, that eventually just kind of snowballed into um, an internship at Facebook, which turned into my full-time role there. Yeah, you were there for multiple years, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a fun time to be at the company, for one. Like, that's, I'm sure there are a lot of stories in there. Uh, I'm curious, like, what were some of the, the things that really stood out in that experience? And I'm also kind of interested in, you know, your early career at this, like, super fast-paced company that's obviously on rocket ship trajectory. What were some of the ways that you were being grown as a designer throughout that process? Being at Facebook in around like 2015 type timeframe, honestly, it felt like the best place to be. I know it's kind of um, changed and a lot of things are different since then, but it honestly, like as a designer, there was maybe a hundred of us or so. And truly being there and around you was some superstar designer, massively caused my imposter syndrome, but so, so many talented people. And I just got super fortunate that the folks around me were also just so exceptional. Um, so I had folks like, you know, Alex Cornell, who's a really talented designer, Mike Mattis, who designed some of the original like iPhone screens and 
Um, you know, my direct mentor was Chris Tazier, who is um, now kind of the head of design at Plaid. And just like, I just got honestly so stupidly lucky that I was sitting there around these people because I think when you're around people that good, you just kind of absorb them by osmosis. And I would see them posting work and I'd be in critiques with them and um, immediately just realize like, okay, this is what good actually looks like. And I think that that's like something that's so critical early on for a lot of folks that some designers don't really get enough of, which is like, what does good look like? And how do you really understand what does it look like when a team is going well or a product is going well? And I think that was probably one of the most formative things was just joining kind of a winning company and feeling what winning felt like <laughs> and, and seeing really just exceptional design such that I had that bar. And so that anytime I would pitch myself to go to any other company or whatever it was, I had, you know, those people in mind. That's one of the questions I wanted to ask was yeah. obviously you, you've been surrounded by like some pretty elite designers and you obviously just listed your little group there. I follow them all on Twitter kind of thing. Yeah. How, I mean, how much imposter syndrome were you feeling in those early days? How did you even deal with what it was like to be surrounded by people that were so excellent at their craft? I had almost a bit of denial that I was um, feeling imposter syndrome being around these people. And I think the way that materialized was I was just so absurdly hard on myself. I'm a perfectionist and I think a lot of designers suffer from such an affliction. And I think we just really beat ourselves up. So I took it as kind of motivation to beat myself up to the point where I was like, you know, I'd get really upset when I would present designs and they wouldn't land the same way as some of these other folks. And even though that's so not fair, right? Like they had had all this other experience or done all these other things. And yet I was putting myself next to them. And I think there was a couple things that really helped. I think one was um, a really big one was just, I had a really formative manager named Charlie Sutton who told me early on, first of all, he told me you're the design lead as much as anyone is just find your area and you're the leader of it and you're in charge of it. And I think that was really powerful because he made me feel super empowered, even though I was the leader of like one page uh, and, you know, <laughs> like or one section of the app. But it was still, um, you know, being the lead of that one thing made me feel super empowered. And he said, go into the meeting and that's how you introduce yourself. And so I think he gave me a lot of confidence that way to just even feel comfortable speaking as like someone with that level of power and control. <laughs> and that gave me kind of a sense of accountability. And then I think, you know, the other was just a lot of folks reminding me not to compare myself as much to others and just to really, you know, it sounds super basic, but just remember that every time that I'm seeing their work, it's coming from five to 10 years, uh, more times of making the exact same thing. Right. And so, um, or even just a couple more years at the company. And so I think that was just something formative for me was just realizing they have just done this, this exact design so many more times than I have. And so I just... If I experience that enough, then I can, you know, put myself on the same level and try and compare myself. But until then, it's not really fair. Yeah, I know. I think that's very well said. I guess it's kind of interesting. I mean, it sounds like you really did benefit a lot from exceptional mentors and different design leaders and just kind of, like you said, this osmosis factor. At what point did you realize you wanted to kind of leave all that and then go do it by yourself and be the sole designer like how do you make that jump what was that like I went from 
you know, being surrounded by these incredible people at Facebook and then leapt to Cruise where I was the first product designer. And that was just a really, really tough experience. When I was at Facebook, I think the thing that I felt was I had seen some folks at Facebook who were kind of like lifers. They had been there for years and years and there's no problem with that. But I think when I saw that, I realized, man, you just like, this is how you design. For you, the way Facebook does things is the way you do things. And I kind of just knew that I wouldn't, I might want to start a company someday, or I might want to do something just a little bit different. And so I, I was so scared about becoming kind of trapped in the comforts of mm -hmm. Facebook and the big company experience. And, and also I had worked at, you know, only briefly, but I, I had worked at a startup before and I remember how fun it was. And it was just kind of a different um, closeness and experience. So I was like, you know, that seems fun. But the other thing that happened was I was reached out to by a recruiter of a different self-driving car company actually. And I'd been interested in the space and had written like a class thesis for it about self-driving cars in public policy. And so I had someone reach out and then I ended up just speaking to more self-driving companies and just being like, Hey, like I got an offer from this company. Do you want to talk to me? <laughs> um, which like sounds absurd, but, um, I just basically pivoted the one offer into a few more. And uh, the, honestly, the thing that I loved the most about Cruise and why I wanted to go work there was the other companies told me what I would be doing. Whereas Cruise, even though I knew nothing, they were just, how, well, how would you do it? Like, how would you solve this problem? Like what, what kind of, what, you know, what would you build and make? And I realized that it was the same mentality as being told I was the lead of my, you know, smaller product area. And it was sort of that same effect on a bigger scale of just people who really um, trusted me and just said, you know, and it was, you know, this, the two co-founders who were saying this to me. And so I was like, you know, I might do it all wrong, but how can you say no to two people who are just, you know, empowering me and saying like, how would you do it? And like, how would you build the team? So um, that was kind of why I did it, I guess, was just uh, was that, and then I also got some good feedback from, again, that same manager, Charlie, who just said, you know, you can always go back to a big company, but it's hard to kind of trade up these experiences where you're going to like go where you're going to grow the most basically. Wow. That's really cool. I didn't know that this was actually like an interest area ahead of time. So you yeah. kind of like sought out the interest area. I mean, that's kind of what I did as well too. So it like super resonates with me. It's very interesting. Um, let's, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about like okay. what those early days at Cruise were like. I mean, you go from kind of owning your little sliver of this established product to probably a heck of a lot of ambiguity and a ton of ownership. What were some of the first steps that you even took to get familiar with the space and figure out what the heck to even do with your time? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think that what the heck to even do with my time um, was the best and constant question that I asked myself at Cruise because in a lot of jobs, you kind of step into a role, especially when I was a more you know junior designer at Facebook. And I was kind of, I wasn't told what to do, but it was, here's your set product area and we have set problems and here are the problems happening in the wild. Whereas at Cruise, it was like I got there and it was like, well, you kind of work with these people and we kind of know how the car is going to drive at some point one day, but people can't use it. And also we don't really have fully the team to build the products you want to make. And um, yeah, so what should we do? Uh, and so it was kind of, you know, and also, of course, we were attached to this vision of the future of, you know, ride sharing. And we knew what 10 years from now looked like at that time, uh, but we didn't know what 
tomorrow or the next six months looked like, right? It's really easy for people to talk about 10 years from now. It's really hard for people to go scale back to two years from now. And mm. so one of the first things I did was I tried to hire the best creative partner I could think of. Um, and so I honestly just tried to get um, a guy named Bradley Ryan, who I knew from Uber and uh, just, you know, had become friends with him on the side. And I was just like, he is just a smart person. And I knew that I needed to kind of recreate that like really exceptional group of people around me again. And I needed more design like people who just made me sweat. <laughs> and I knew that would be the best way to kind of get something done was just to have a creative partner because at Cruise, I just didn't really have much of that. It was a lot of, you know, other disciplines, although we did. So I ended up hiring him and very luckily, and we did end up spending a lot of time with the other disciplines. So I think just spending tons of time with the engineers and being in the garage and riding in the cars and figuring out how they worked, um, you know, just the basic stuff you would do if you were like playing with an app on an Android phone or something like that. Right. But just going down to the garage instead. So I think that was all a really big element. I think the other thing that was critical to succeeding at Cruise was trying to identify some sort of vision, just like anything we could work towards that was like not quicksand. And so um, Bradley and I just really got together and started defining like, what would some vision be? And let's start working towards, is ride sharing even interesting? Is it like delivery? And so we would do that and just, you know, we did a couple of vision sprints. I think I've done more vision sprints there than, I don't know, like anywhere because you just have to. Um, but anyway, so I think it was really just hiring the best creative partner I could think of. And then from there, trying to establish some sort of vision and working with the engineers to sort of understand what was possible and not mostly not at that point, but now it's a lot better. Yeah. That was kind of what I was going to ask next. It's like, I mean, it's so much uncharted territory and you're doing all of these vision statements and everything. I would imagine that you weren't batting a thousand and there were probably some things that you got wrong or different lessons that you learned the hard way. I'm wondering if anything comes to mind in that regard in terms of that first year or so where maybe if you would have went back, you would have approached something a little bit differently. What? No, of course we got everything right. Uh, no, we, uh, yeah, that first year at cruise was really difficult. I think honestly, the biggest part with that particular set of products and challenges was just, we were a little early on certain things. Like we were really yeah. thinking on the consumer side when actually we should have been spending a lot more brain power on the tools side, which we did as well. And we did have designers on that, but I think had we focused more on building the technology instead of dreaming about some of the consumer applications that we were really excited about, I think that would have helped move the company further faster. So I think that it, and honestly, it's the same answer with a lot of things that I've worked on is just timing's really hard. Yeah, absolutely. Something that's interesting as I listen to you talk is that it's so apparent that you were just making this really significant impact. Like, I mean, there's you have so much ownership, you're thinking at such a high level, like company direction type decisions rather than what is the corner radius of this button. And I know from talking to people that a lot of designers, especially earlier in their career, feel like they're kind of just at a lower part of this production cycle where they, they are given the problem and they're told to go find a solution. They churn out work, they work with engineers, and then they repeat. And so I'm wondering what 
advice would you give to a designer who wants to make that big impact? They don't want to be just stuck pushing pixels. I think my advice for the designer who wants to make that really big impact and not just be pushing pixels is there's so many problems around you as a designer that you're just, you're not assigned to, uh, but I'm sure someone would love if they were solved. And so I think just trying to identify what you think is the most important problem facing the areas around you or just something impactful you could be doing and just coming up with the solve and just giving it to the people around you. I think people see that as a gift and they'll start to know you as someone who can, you know, identify these big problems and start trusting you with more. Like even mature companies don't have everything solved and all the people above you have so many more problems that they're trying to deal with that they've not even made you aware of. Uh, and so like just knowing that the field of problems beyond your immediate site is so vast that no one around you can fully solve all of them. It's, it's such a gift for you to go then try and find some of these problems and see what, where you could make the most impact and where the product could get a lot better and to be forming, you know, problem statements around those things and trying to pitch those ideas. Um, something that I really appreciated at Facebook was there's a huge design sharing culture and something that was very common was you would see people publish what were called like North stars where people would design like a really crazy cool prototype or something that was just, you know, just a really inspiring look at the future of something. But some of them weren't like out there. They were kind of like very practical and they weren't even about your own area or whatever it is um, that you work on. It was people contributing to other things. And at Snap, we actually have a huge culture of that too, where like we don't try to verticalize ourselves too much and we really kind of take on other problems and start to solve them. Dang, that was very well said. Um, I'd like to transition a little bit and talk about the like hiring an interview process, um, something that obviously like you have a lot of experience in, you have a claim to fame that I've never heard before, which is that you actually have never been denied a job offer, which I still think is incredible given the caliber of companies that you've worked at. <laughs> you talk about this idea of the science of getting someone to say yes in an interview. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yes. So the science of getting someone to say yes in an interview, I think is pretty simple, actually. I think it's just, okay, so product design interviews follow a pretty similar structure. Like they're pretty predictable in terms of what folks are looking for and even kind of the structure of how the interviews go. And I think one part of the science is just kind of following some of that rubric and making sure that you're checking certain boxes. So what that means is, for example, something that happens really often is I get to the end of three times the person pre presenting their work and I've never seen a prototype and I actually have no clue if they can prototype. <laughs> and so that's a box that's unchecked for me at the end of the interview. And so I think like really what this amounts to is making it as easy as possible for your interviewer to picture you in the role they're trying to hire you for. And so what that means in practice is things like, for example, if you're interviewing for like a um, web SaaS role, you know, probably don't, you know, probably leave some of your mobile like AR prototyping at home and probably bring in some of your like uh, web SaaS prototyping, right? So I think it's, it's simple things like that, but you would just be so shocked at, at how many times I see people and I leave the interview like, 
not totally confident they can like help us with our design systems job or um, can prototype at all for a role that's like quite heavy in prototyping. So I think that's that's like a huge part of it is just making sure that like the person on the other end has to do as little thinking as possible to imagine like you creating impact in the role they're hiring for. Yeah, I love that. Are there other boxes that candidates leave unchecked or just general mistakes that you see people making throughout the hiring process? A big box that people leave unchecked is the prototyping where people don't show that type of work or they only show work on one set of devices and maybe the role is, you know, web and mobile. And so you leave with that kind of like question mark in your head. I think, you know, a lot of times people do a lot of like telling and not showing. And so I think a mistake that people make often is I'll see a deck where it's like slides of like, hey, this is about me. I'm from like these areas. And um, I worked at this list of places. And here's a diagram, double diamond, that shows my process. And when I see all that, as the interviewing manager, I'm sitting there like, I deeply want you to get this role. Like every candidate, I like want to imagine them. I'm trying to give them as much like you know, kindness and generosity and imagination as possible. But when I can only see text and I'm waiting and waiting until I see the designs, that like makes me anxious. Um, and so I think some people just talk about process and talk about how good they are at certain things and just don't actually show what it is. Um, so there's that. I think one gripe I have about the process that I think is a little more controversial is I am a big fan of come in with a presentation. Um, it can be made in Figma, it can be made in whatever you want, but I, I think I struggle when people come in with design files and they walk me around the design file. Um, one, because it makes me a little seasick, but two, because it's, you know, often you'll get like artifacts of like bad little things or like you can't understand what's going on. And so back to the point of helping your interviewer imagine you in the position, it's hard for me to imagine you in a position that I'm trying to hire for if I'm like struggling to keep up with like what is going on and what were the options and I don't even know the problem you were trying to solve because like I'm struggling to figure out who your user is. So I think just a lot of folks don't put themselves in the interviewer's chair and say like, how do I just make this so dead obvious for you? And the reason that's especially important as a designer is because I think unlike some other roles, that communication is actually like the job, right? The job is to make it so dead obvious for the user um, to, to understand and help them such that if you can't do that for me, the interviewer, like who's trying to extend you generosity and understand, um, unlike a user who doesn't have to, um, I think that's, um, you know, it doesn't, doesn't play well to your favor. Something that comes to mind when you even bring that up is I mean, the importance of even just giving a little idea of what the end result looks like yes. up front. So I'm not guessing the entire time. And I'm just like looking through that same process chart wondering like, I don't even know where we're going. Like give, yes. just the importance of giving someone the, an idea of where we're going is so incredibly helpful before getting into another whiteboard with sticky notes, you know? <laughs> totally, yeah, and I think that that's a big, a big part of my course is actually talking about some of the little cute communication heuristics you can be using. So even, you know, you were speaking about the case study, but I was thinking like, you know, when you even introduce your work, I always talk about like how you want a sizzle reel so if your case studies, maybe your case studies show like, you know, some deep work on particular subjects, but your sizzle reel should show like 
the cool 3D thing you made and the beautiful design system or whatever, like kind of just a reel of things that's like, hey, I'm a lot more than maybe one or two designs I'm about to zoom in on. And I think some folks just zoom in on the last project they did or, or whatever it is. But I think just like providing a breadth of that work is is super important too. Um, another mistake that I see people make very commonly is they show work that is either like a bit dated or it's like kind of trapped within the confines of a design system that maybe they weren't super excited to work in. And um, just like, you know, I think like trying to provide quick tips in my course about that and how you can do things like you can probably talk to your interviewer about that, right? Because if I'm a designer, I've definitely worked in like design systems that I was felt just completely trapped in. And so I think if you speak with the person and you try and highlight like what your impact was and like what you were doing separately from like, oh, like maybe I'm reacting to like the colors, but actually that's like your color scheme. Um, I think just like helping the interviewer understand the pressure that you were under and like the um, constraints of that system is so important. Yeah. I I can I can picture some portfolio presentations that come to mind on that topic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> another question, maybe just like the flip side of that, are there other uh, are there other elements of really successful standout candidates or traits that they have or different tactics that they're using throughout the process that really make you say yes, this is a perfect person for the role? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on top of I think. The perfect person for the role usually comes in and it's, it, it almost sounds like unrehearsed a little bit. I think they're just very honest and direct and they almost don't even really need to present because they're just talking about their work in like a very um, human comfortable way. So I think like a lot of the best people aren't performative, even though like the irony of this course is like, I'm a little bit teaching you how to perform. But I think what that means is those people are so drilled into explaining a problem in just a simple way that you can naturally follow what they're saying better and you want to like um, go along the journey with what they're saying and you want to endorse their solutions because they've just made it so easy for you to grasp. We also love the people who come in and just have like, and if you start out the deck with like an amazing prototype, like you are gripped, like everyone is like fully attentive to what you're doing. And so that's something that I have in my own uh, deck is making sure to show some like really cool things in the beginning, such that like when I get into the details on something, you're like, oh, but I know that's coming, right? Um, same thing, some of that's true. I would say really successful candidates also are very real about the process that got them to the end state design. So something I talk a lot about is uh, painting the before really clearly so that the after lands like very strongly. And I think a lot of strong candidates are just very good at telling you like what was the organizational challenge that was happening beyond just like the pixels. And throughout the entire conversation, they're good at like constructively speaking about how they worked with partners and maybe things that didn't go so well and all of that. And then I think these people also act like owners. And so that like when they talk about the end state of the design, they don't just say like, and we're done, it's cool. Like usually they're talking about things like the outcomes and how did they test it? And maybe it went wrong and that's okay. Um, I have, uh, I actually, you know, would used to do a portfolio presentation on a product that went really wrong <laughs> and actually didn't, um, like we didn't end up shipping what I designed and we actually redid the whole thing. Um, but it's, you know, 
to the interviewer, it's like, they're not looking for perfection. Like they've had to reel back so many products and redo so many things. And so I think people who are honest and open and like clearly have understood how to navigate difficult challenges are more impressive than the people who are like, here's my like set of rising actions and my happy conclusion on my double diamond design process. Yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, it, we were in a interviewing a candidate a couple months ago that we asked him that question and was just like, well, what did you learn after this? Like what, what, how did it go? And there was no answer. And it was just like, ah, man, it was, there was such a conclusion to the work after the product was shipped that it felt so odd. One thing I think really strong candidates do as well. You were mentioning like takeaways and how people, you know, should come away with some improvement on the work. Something I was taught was that, uh, folks who are maybe like earlier in their career, their takeaways are either nothing or very individual. So it's like, I learned to talk to my product manager more. That might be an individual one. Whereas very senior people think in frameworks and systems. So um, I actually, with the project that I was just mentioning, where I kind of had like a communication breakdown and it kind of ended up messy. I actually talk, I use that as a moment to talk about how I built a communication framework to speak to the, all the people in the company that I work with. And so I talk, I use it as a chance to be like, Hey, I developed a framework and a system where like I do these three steps to make sure that everybody is involved and understanding what's going on. So I think those takeaway moments, sometimes people are like, I learned to speak to people versus like, I actually learned that this process might be better or like that this is a new thing I want to incorporate into my own playbook. You've shared a couple things that make me quite confident that your like portfolio presentation in an interview process looks very different than the majority of portfolios that I look at, which is kind of exciting. So I'm wondering if we could just pretend that like I'm redoing my portfolio for an interview tomorrow. What advice do you have on formatting, presentation, order, anything at all that you would help someone go from zero to one on a new portfolio presentation? To create a really great portfolio presentation from scratch, I think the first thing you have to do is almost like go back to think about going back to school and like when you had to write essays and you had to sit down and say like, what is the point I'm trying to communicate to this person? And the point is probably something about yourself. How do you want to be seen as a designer? So for me, it might be like, I want to be seen as the ambiguous designer. I don't really want to work on design systems, which is true of me. And so I don't show you that work because I don't want you to think of me that way. The other is, um, what does the company want to see? So again, it's back to maybe if it's a mobile company, you should be using a lot more mobile screens. Right. Um, so I think it's like, first think about like, what's the story you want to tell about yourself, like that narrative. And then from there, it's like making every minute of the presentation work towards that. So in the beginning, I like to start out with, again, just like an essay or something. It's like you almost like summarize everything and you show like a bit of, you know, maybe a breadth of work. So you show where you worked. But one thing I like to do is um, on my like body of work slide, like, hey, like my timeline of where I've worked, I usually show a few smaller visuals of things that I've worked on in different device mocks. And what that does cool. is it shows you I've designed for a car and a tablet and a phone. Yeah, it's and genius. like it shows that I'm like very agnostic to like what I've worked on, right? And then 
from there, I do kind of the sizzle reel of, hey, I'm, I like 3D prototyping. And then I'll show you like this prototype I made. I like to, you know, whatever it is, like build websites. And then I'll show you something I've made. So it's kind of like, you know, I think in the beginning, it's really like, hook people, tell people you like kind of your thesis statement and then provide a little general summary of things you're going to go over and like hook them with like, why are you a convincing narrator? And I think like they'll be, you know, much more motivated to listen to the rest of it. Um, and then to your point, I think like, it's the same thing. It's like each of your uh, types, each of your projects should be in support of that initial thesis. And so you might want to talk about if you were trying to be a leader, like maybe you want to talk about a time when you were a really big leader on a project and maybe there was no product manager and you had to big step in, like maybe that's a good point to talk about. And then to your point, it's the same thing where you kind of like, you have your opening statement, which is like, uh, you know, explaining what's going on, showing them, you know, a visual of what you're about to work towards, and then like kind of summarizing throughout that, um, how you're going to get to that like conclusion state and why that conclusion state was like the right thing. So I think it's like all really just in service of like making the conclusion at every step, like so obvious, right. That in such that you get to the end of it and people are just like, duh, obviously this person, like I've already imagined the thing they would do here. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's such an excellent lens to use. Like how can I make it so that this person can imagine me sitting across from them on a zoom meeting, working with them every day, like owning these kinds of problems. And that's, I think that's really excellent. You've obviously shared a ton of really great advice that demonstrates a pretty significant breadth of knowledge. My assumption is that you didn't gain all of that knowledge from getting it perfectly right at every step of the process. And so I'm wondering if you have any stories from your time in these different interviews and hiring processes where maybe things didn't go so perfect and maybe some of the different things that you've learned uh, the hard way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so many stories come to mind of learning things the hard way. I think fortunately, a lot of the experiences of it I've had like directly translate into some sort of like positive message. Um, so I'll share a few funny stories. Um, one is uh, when I interviewed with Snapchat, uh, you actually do your final presentation with Evan Spiegel, the CEO of the company. And it's pretty cool because he's, you know, he is like just so involved with the product today. Like he can school any of us on how well he knows the product, which is just super impressive. And it, so just to say that he's super involved in design. And so it wasn't like a outside leader looking at my work. It was like someone who really like is with it and understands what's going on. So I think I had to be maybe the first person from Facebook to ever interview for a design job at snap. And, uh, so I showed him my portfolio and all this stuff in it. And I had like some designs from VR and all this stuff. And, um, you know, we were doing kind of a review, but the first, one of the first things he asked me was just like, Hey, this first project you had there, um, like, tell me about it. And so I started talking about this calling people in VR experience. And it's a project that like kind of went over well with other people because it was really complex prototyping. So it looked cool. And then he asked me, he's like, do you think this is a good product? And I thought for a second, like, what do I do in this scenario? Like, how do I answer this question? And I told him, no, frankly, don't want to spend like 40 minutes, like calling my friend in VR. It just like, isn't that comfortable or fun of an experience, especially at that point in time. 
And he just like laughed and um, said like, you know, it's the right answer and not because of anything about the product, but just sort of like, he was just happy that I was like, honest about the work and that, they, that I was just not trying to make it something more grand and better than it was. Um, and that I was just honest that like, no, I just wrote you this whole case study about this product and all the decisions and the thinking. But really, if I look back at the time, I was just like following orders a little bit. And so my message from like what I took away from that interview and I ended up, you know, still like taking that job. But what I took away from that interview was like, even after all these years of doing it um, and like talking to people and, and like also people had responded so well to that project in the past, I realized that just actually sticking to like solving real human problems was so much more impressive and that I had bent more to the like fun, flashy, like cool thing instead of just solving the real problem. And the only thing that saved me in that interview was like by kind of walking back on it. Right. Wow. And so, yeah. So I think that that was like one instance. Another instance um, that was kind of a good learning experience for me was, uh, so I'm, I'm like notorious for, I don't like practicing. Like I really, really don't like practicing at all. And so whenever I've like recreated my portfolio deck, it's just whatever I go into next as an interview is like the first time I do it. And so I had an interesting experience when I was interviewing for Apple, um, and their human interface team where, uh, they, you know, they have a series of interviews and I was thinking like, oh, maybe one is behavioral and like one is like portfolio. And I didn't know what was what. And um, it turned out that like somehow there was like maybe a mishap or something, but basically everyone I interviewed with um, was a portfolio presentation individually. And so when I did my presentation, I realized because I wasn't practiced, I was so used to giving the presentation like once to someone and then I would go to the next, you know, get like, you know, to a whole other interview loop and like present to the next people. Right. And so I realized that because I was presenting it so many times, I was like kind of, uh, changing facts of the story or like not changing, like lying, but just sort of like emphasizing different things and like kind of pulling the story and making it a little bit different every single time. And this is like one day I had like three in a row. And then another day I had four in a row, uh, where I was doing this over and over. And so Basically, I got to the end and they had to like had another sit down with me and like ask me some questions and be like, hey, can we just like clarify like what was this thing? <laughs> and like you showed someone else this other project. And so it was um, I was taking that as a huge moment to like riff and figure it out and like kind of make sense of like what I was saying. But had I just like actually practiced it, then I wouldn't have practiced throughout my entire um, interview yeah. with this company. So you've landed all these roles at really just amazing companies. And I'm wondering, have you actually been in a situation where you've received that initial offer and actually negotiated against it? And what was that like? Yes, I have uh, been in that position where I received an offer and then I negotiated it, which just feels crazy when, you know, you're just humbled to even get the offer from any of these companies. But I think that something that's really important to me is making sure that if the market is saying something, then, uh, people are valued for like the kindest of contributions that like people are saying they should be valued for. And unfortunately I've been in a few situations where I discovered that like peers of mine were making more than I was. And it's just a lot harder to change that once you're inside of the company than once you're like when you're negotiating that very first offer. And so it can really like end up compounding to a big difference. So I always advise that people negotiate. 
um, you know, I mean, some people maybe like they get the offer and they're just like, wow, this is perfect. But I think that typically I, I advise that people negotiate in some way because one, the reason, the number one reason is because typically the person who's giving you the offer understands that, you know, you're probably a good person and good, you know, competitive candidate because they're giving you that offer. And the design market is just such that like the worst they're going to say is no to you and just tell you that like what you're asking for isn't the right thing. So I think like that's like one thing on the face is like the worst you're going to get told is no. Um, and, and typically they're not coming to you with the absolute most money they could ever afford you. Like typically the way this works is folks are given bands, like the recruiters are given bands that they need to place you in. And there's definite room up and down the band for all kinds of things and signing bonuses and whatever it is. So I always recommend that everyone get very aware of like what folks are making at their levels at different companies and knowing that obviously a big company is different than a startup. And so just kind of knowing the market information and knowing that like bands exist and things like that. Um, so when it comes to negotiating, what I really recommend is having a clear picture of what would actually make you happy in the role and what would make you feel like fairly valued and what would make you feel the market is working the way it should and I'm being properly valued for the skills that I have. And typically the way people think of that is I want more salary, right? But I actually think it's a more complex picture um, what it is that you want to ask for. So I think of compensation being composed of a few different parts. So obviously there's your base salary, there's um, some sort of like RSU stock option, like equity component to the company. Um, then there's also things like signing bonuses. And uh, then on top of that, there's things like perks. And perks can be everything from like, you know, health stipends and travel and whatever to um, things like working remotely. So I think, you know, you should take the offer you get and just decide which parts of it are the most important to you. And so maybe a company has like a partial in office and you want to be remote or you want to be like less in office than uh, or not. Or maybe you care really deeply right now, like you're trying to buy a house or something. And so cash up front in a bonus means a lot more to you than a little more equity or something like that. And so I would really just sit down and say, what are your goals and what's going to really make the difference for you? And like, what are you trying to accomplish in the next year outside of work? Even that compensation could really help you, uh, like get to that goal. So I think it's really about defining a clear picture of that and then going in and deciding like, what are the areas you're willing to compensate on? Um, and then, you know, I'd say then from there, it's, it's also about getting even more creative. I worked with a friend last year who, you know, she actually, she cared about getting equity, but what she cared about the most was she had been getting like steady equity over time from her last company. And so what was important to her was when she joined her new company that it vested faster so that she wasn't losing like a, a big amount of income and then waiting one year to get that one year like cliff of money. And so for her, the most important thing was like, hey, I'll take the same amount of equity. I just wanted to start vesting now. Um, and so I think there's like a lot of ways that people don't think about compensation and all the kinds of things you could do, um, with, within that as well to try and kind of like change, change it a little bit. And, and I think people fear that something really bad is going to happen, but typically the, the folks, they talk to people, they want to hire you. And so they're trying to make the pitch and then they come back and maybe they say no, or maybe they say, Hey, we'll do 
50% of what you want, or, Hey, we can't do the salary, but we can do the bonus. Um, usually the bonus, I think people have the most success with negotiating up. Um, anyway, so those are just like a few, a few things and ways I think about it. It's amazing. I mean, it's, this whole conversation has been incredibly practical and I'm, I'm just excited to get it out in the world. I'd like to end by recognizing the fact that, I mean, you have this course for people that want to go deeper. And so as a final question, can you just give us a little bit more of a glimpse into what you're going to be teaching, who it's for, and what people can expect? Sure. Yeah, the course is really about like just what it says, like nailing the product design interview. And I think it's really for two sets of people. One is designers at really like any stage of their journey. Like I think you can get something from this, even if you're a very, you know, senior designer who's maybe looking for new roles or you're a less experienced designer who's kind of just starting out and, and doesn't even know really the process entails. And I think it's also really applicable to um, folks who are trying to hire designers and maybe just haven't built out a, uh, you know, interview system yet. So, you know, the course title maybe begets this a little bit, but I think it's really for folks who like maybe a startup founder who hasn't, who doesn't know how to build a design loop, an interview, and they don't know like what things to be looking for. I think this could be a really great um, potential course for that as well. In terms of things we're going to go over, I think, you know, one of the biggest things is really talking about how to narrow down that story about yourself, that kind of thesis statement of that every part of your interview and, and your uh, journey should really support. And from there, it's like, you know, how do you even, uh, you know, I don't want to assume that you're at the end of this process and you're in the interview. I think a lot of people who are taking this might not even know how to get an interview or haven't been successful in going from like a screen or something to, to the next step. So we talk about that too. The latter half of the course is really about the portfolio presentation and just kind of the meat of, you know, what can you do to really like sell yourself to the, to these folks and, um, you know, make a really compelling example of your work and just deliver a really great presentation. And then there's some bonus stuff too. Like we'll get into some more of, of the negotiating side as well. That's something I'm just really passionate about, but I think that, uh, I want to make sure that the folks taking this course just understand that the way I'm, I'm really trying to format it is taking you back and forth between the chairs of yourself as the candidate and then the interviewer and really understanding how to bridge that gap between what you're presenting and maybe what they're looking for. Um, so anyway, I think that's the most important. In terms of structure, there's going to be some videos, but I think like the thing I'm really hoping the most for is that like, there's just a few hours where we can like all hang out live and folks can be asking me questions. So I'm planning to kind of source questions beforehand um, or just kind of address things that I've already been getting via emails and just really like Q&A and like just answer questions people have or just open myself up to, you know, people have already sent their portfolios to me and things like that. And, you know, I can't review every single detail, but I do think it'll be a great chance to make an example of certain types of work and talk about how we might improve something and help each other out. Sounds amazing. I think it's going to have such a big impact and I'm excited for it to start. 